chapter 10, and we're going all the way through 1118, lengthy reading, uh, but there's a great message here that centers upon the resurrection. We're really asking, answering a question, why we need the resurrection and on this Easter Sunday from this text. It is central to what this text is about. Let's look at chapter 10, and we'll be reading the Word of God. The Word of God being read is a means of grace just as the preaching of the Word. And I wish in a lot of times that many pulpits, rather than going on and speaking such blasphemy of our Savior, would just simply read the Bible, and they would do much better. And I remember times that I've been in classes and in a Bible college and such, where God had attended to just the reading of the Scripture in such a way that hearts were humbled and affections were raised just at the reading. And so as we read, let us be mindful, it is just as significant. In fact, it's charged to me as a pastor, uh, as it was to Timothy, that we would give our attention to the reading of the Scriptures, the public reading. And so we begin in verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who was called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come to me. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, from the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water? For baptizing these people, 
who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now may God bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Amen. We're looking at why we need the resurrection. And in doing so, we're looking at a passage, a narrative that sets forth the resurrection in its center. But as it begins, we see largely that what is about to be spoken and what's about to occur that we know and have read has happened here comes with great difficulty both to Cornelius and to Peter. Cornelius is a God-fearing man. You'll note that he is said to be a centurion, which means he is the one who commands a hundred Roman soldiers. Not only that, he is in what is called the Italian cohort. And the cohort would be 600 men. And it appears to be an elite group within the Roman army. There has not been, and nor will there ever be, such an elite military force on earth than there had been in Rome. 
These men were the fittest and most substantial warriors that you would be able to find or could ever find. And this man in particular is one that is given high standing among the most elite Roman group of their military. You need to be mindful that this military knew how to fight more than any other that could fight at the time or ever could. These men were part of an empire and there are no other empires, nor will there be. The Roman Empire was the last of that which was set forth in prophecy, which would be the final, and we know historically came to an end at the proper time. This particular empire was the fiercest when it came to battle. They knew how to take down cities and countries as they pleased. And this man there in this place was one who feared the Lord. He would think of all places there would be someone like this who fears the Lord. And perhaps that's why God chose this one. So as to show us there's one here, even in this place, who fears the Lord. He's a Gentile, meaning he's a non-Jew. And he's a God-fearer. He's not a proselyte, meaning he hasn't gone through the ritual of conversion to Judaism. He is simply one who is a Gentile who fears the Lord. And he is practicing faith in the respect to he is giving alms. Likely, what we see here, this man would have been very wealthy. And so he's a wealthy man. Immediately, all types of obstacles and difficulties come up because we know what our Lord said. It would be easier for one to go through an eye of a needle than to have a rich man enter the kingdom. But here you have a wealthy man giving alms in a very unexpected place as a centurion. It wasn't long ago the centurions played the part in crucifixion of Christ. So you think about the many difficulties here already presented. If, if, if you don't see difficulties, let's go ahead and add some more to the fact here is one who fears God. But yet in chapter 11, we realize that all that he was doing and all that he was, he was not a saved believer. Uh, chapter 11, of course, tells us that it says he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So his fearing of God did not make him a Christian. That presents great difficulty. However, what presents even further difficulty is that this man who feared God, who wasn't a believer, had the attention of God. This man was not a saint. This man was simply carrying out in the fear of God in his nation In a very unexpected place, he was not a saint, but yet God heard his prayers. And one cannot get around the fact that that is set forth. And we must pause there and just examine that a moment and realize God hears the prayers of those who are not yet saved. That presents a great difficulty, doesn't it? To what we often assume and what we often would teach. But here is a man whose prayers and alms are being accepted by God. It says 
here that this devout man, and not just him, his whole household, his whole household. So when we talk about his household, these are this is a believing household in so far as one can believe without being saved, without being a Christian yet. There's much more to being a Christian than these things. Immediate application. But there's also something glorious and beautiful about this, that God hears the prayers of those who are not yet Christians. That are like this, fearing him. He sends an angel of God to this man who's not a believer. And he tells them very plainly. And we should know immediately when it says, what is it, Lord? This terrifying appearance already indicates what is about to come is quite difficult, is going to be difficult to accept. He stared at him in terror. And he says plainly, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. We, we really have to let this sink in. This man's not a Christian. But his prayers and what he gave were accepted by God. He directs him. To another person who's going to have difficulty with this whole thing. But there are different difficulties, really. On the one side, here's a man who in his heart wants to go further in into intimacy with God's people as he knows them. And in God and in worship of God as he knows it. He he desires to go further, but he's prevented. If he were to go to the temple, which he did. As it seems here, if he would give alms, he would go to the temple. He would only be allowed so far to the court of the Gentiles. He would not be allowed to go any further. There was always a barrier up for this man, but he went as far as he could go. But he wanted to go further. But there was always something that stopped him from going further. And for gladness, this is going to be difficult in in some ways to accept because the message being brought is going to be astoundingly glorious to tell that this man, that the gospel came to bring Gentiles like him all the way in. Well, it's not just difficult for this man to accept that. It's also very difficult for Peter to accept the global intent of the gospel so that he'll go all the way out. In other words, that he will begin to see that this gospel is now for the whole world. That this gospel is made for all whom God before time had chosen in eternity to receive him among the Jews and the Gentiles. So there's a great difficulty. There's a problem. There's obstacles for both of these men. 
One of them is going to be more of a religious obstacle and the other is going to be, um, yes, a religious obstacle, but it's in another direction. It's a man desiring to go further in. So there we have it. We have this problem. A problem for a God-fearer who wants to go further in with the Lord but can't. And a problem with a real disciple who's a Christian, who's a child of God, who's learned many lessons, walked with Jesus, heard Jesus, saw him rise from the dead, who has yet to see and, and, and be able to reconcile what this gospel was made for to go all the way out. Well, what was the reason why these obstacles existed? Why was it so difficult for both of these men in their respective problems. Well, we find that in verses 9 down through uh, 33, per se, is we see this vision now comes the very next day to uh, Peter. He's hungry. And in the midst of that providence of hunger, when he's wanting something to eat, he falls into a trance, which I imagine is just like a really, really um, satisfying daydream. And he sees in this trance, he sees heavens open, and he sees a great sheet come down with four corners upon the earth demonstrating this fullness of the earth as it is. And on it are things that would be a food and some things that he would never eat. And they're put all together on this sheet, as it says here, of these beasts of all kinds, animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And he's told to rise and kill and eat, which would have gone against the ceremonial law to which the Jew was completely dedicated to under the Old Covenant. I love the answer Peter gives because it represents an answer often that becomes our obstacle and our difficulty and the reason why we run into some problems ourselves. He says, by no means, Lord. He doesn't say... Leviticus says, your word says, he says, I've not done that before. I've not sinned against you that way before. I've not committed that wrong before. And this is the reason he poses as to why he would not kill and eat these unclean animals. The voice came to him. It came three times, but the message was, in essence, the ceremonial law as Peter knew it under what is now the new covenant is done away with completely. That the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to this vision, has now swiped away the requirements of the ceremonial law because they were shadows as we know from other books that pointed to the substance and the substance has now come 
And this message to Peter is saying that does not anymore apply. You are now to see these things as declared clean. Fulfillment has come in this covenant. You are now not under the old. You are now under the new. And therefore, ceremonial requirements of the law, dietarily, dietary was never about the diet. Okay, and neither, neither is it today. Neither is it today. When people go full-fledged into some type of diet program, there's always a religious goal. The diet here has been laid away, and it's said that you can now take of anything that is there. It is now open because your requirement to worship God is not based on any longer these codes which served a purpose under the old, which are now fulfilled in the new. So this is extremely difficult for someone their whole life. They've never done this. Because doing it their whole life would have meant they were not allowed to go all the way in they would be put in the same place that you see Cornelius and even further back. They couldn't go to worship on the basis if they had done this. Besides this, throughout our text, we see coming up again and again that he's at the house of Simon the Tanner, which presents another obstacle because there he would be around dead animals, also causing some obvious concern about his ceremonial uncleanness. So now in the new covenant, there's no issue of that. And this man who's lived his whole life under the old covenant is told that's fulfilled. What Jesus has done has fulfilled that. No longer is that in effect. Well, he's preparing Peter, obviously, to interact with Cornelius, who is a Gentile. And note that Peter is the apostle to the Jews. This is not about Peter. This is about the Gentiles receiving the gospel through the ministry of the apostle Paul. That story is still being told. But Peter is the minister used at this time. And note that in the interaction with Peter, Cornelius comes to him. And as a God-fearer, acts very Roman Catholic-y, doesn't he? He falls down at Peter to worship him. But Peter here corrects him immediately and says, I am a man like you. Don't do that. That's a far cry from the papacy of our day, isn't it? That says, kiss the ring and bow to the feet of one supposedly in Peter's stead. The Bible knows nothing of that, savingly speaking. That will leave someone on the other side. They can't go further in. It puts up more barriers. What's happening here is taking down walls, is removing barriers. 
and is allowing the worshiper to go all the way in through Christ alone. No man on earth is to be bowed down to and hailed and kissed of their ring in worship. It is blatantly clear that there is only one that is to be worshipped, God alone, in His triune person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of us are but men. And we bow to God and God only. Now throughout the text, you'll find this repeated word. And it's the word that's translated later as He rose again. You've seen it already throughout, but you'll see it as it says, rise, Peter, same word. It's anistime or anastas. And maybe to remember it, some places it can come up like the word Anastasia. It means resurrection. Throughout the entire section of chapters, we see that word again and again and again and again, and it's a clue. It's a clue pointing us to the solution that's coming, the cure to the problem. But what's the reason why Peter would have a hard and difficult time accepting this? That the global intent of the gospel is so important that now that that he is to go all the way out and regard the Gentiles as those who are just as clean as the Jews and have can attain can attain the hearing of the gospel just as the Jews. What makes it so difficult? Well, it's simply this. It is a flattening of the Old to the New Testament. It's looking at your Bibles in a way that the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are just all the same. And there has not been such a radical shift where a mountain of Zion has been raised. And that grace has not streamed out to the nations, but to look at the new covenant and the New Testament and the the new covenant of grace as if something has not happened to raise the valleys into mountains and to take the mountains and turn them into valleys. It's to look at things like that that causes the difficulty, causes the disease down in the bones of even those who are genuine believers and will keep them from going further out because simply they're looking at their Bibles flat. They're flat earth people. It's a big problem. They're flat Bible people. And they don't see the New Testament as providing a radical, complete, whole change of everything down to the core and fulfilling what God intended from the beginning. And that is his grace was not given to the Jews in vain, but God has appeared in his son Jesus to the Jews. He has rose and he has appeared to them so they would share the gospel with us. And so that we now, who before could only go so far in, now enter into the very throne room of grace 
the holy of holies, not here on earth, but to that which the temple on earth pointed to, the very place in heaven where God's throne is. That now, Jew and Gentile who are in the Lord are put into one body and are given access and hope and peace and joy permanently upon them believing on Jesus. But the disease is when we read the New Testament and we interpret the New Testament and we apply the New Testament like it's the Old Testament. And that disease can affect anybody at any time in history. And a sure way to be able to tell that disease exists is the church lacks the volition to go and take the gospel to the nations. Or God-fearers in the congregation continue to simply stand outside of where they really want to go. They never move up closer to God. They never grow closer to God. They just stay on the outer rim of the mountain, if you would, and they never go in. They fear God. They give to the church. They pray to God. But they're always feeling they can't ever go all the way in with God. And anywhere the gospel was not fully declared in its union of Gentile and Jewish believers in one body, the ceremonial law complete, whenever that gospel was not robust enough to declare that now we have access to God by faith in Jesus Christ and his name, then there's going to be those symptoms of a disease in how people, both Christian and non, are viewing their Bibles. So Peter and Cornelius are both infected by this disease. One is saved, one is lost still, but the one who's lost is on his way to justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he's going to be legally declared righteous by the end of chapter 10 as we read. And it's then recounted in chapter 11 what happened. And there's going to be an understanding for Peter that the solution has happened, that he has indeed been brought in. And Peter comes and declares what we know as the cure for this disease and difficulty when he says in chapter 10, 34 through 43, he says at the heart, first he says, truly I understand, I comprehend, I now grasp, he doesn't show partiality. He doesn't play favoritism between Jew and Gentile. I now get it. 
He says, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, hold on a second. That does not mean from the context of the text that anybody that has a well-meaning disposition to the God of the Jews, as we would know, to the God of the of the Christian, that that they're going to heaven. It doesn't say that. It says that they needed to hear the word. And it says even here that he will declare to you a message in verse 14 of chapter 11 by which you will be saved. So it does not say that people are saved. It must mean then that the Gentile may now attain access to this gospel, hear it, and be able to believe it in a way that wasn't present before. So I think that's important. Because the text never is saying that anybody who simply fears the Lord and does what is acceptable to Him now is saved. It's not saying that. But it is saying that God is hearing their prayers and that God will save them. And that is glorious. Now, what, it, what again is the tonic? What is the solution to making sure we get the global intent of the gospel and we're not infected if we have this disease that's keeping us from going all the way in, if we're a God-fearer who doesn't really have salvation, or if we're a Christian for many years who is not really zealous to see the world brought to Christ, what cures this? And I believe what it says here at the heart by its repetitive use of the word resurrection is none other than the doctrine of Christ risen from the dead, not only to judge, but with emphasis to forgive our sins. And if anybody knew what forgiveness was, Peter knew it. Failing his Lord as a believer Three times in rejection and denial. Being received back and able now in fulfillment of what Jesus said that I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when you turn again, when you're healed, spiritually speaking, strengthen your brothers And here, I believe, is a text that strengthens the brothers. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, raised for the justification of all men who believe on Christ. Let me say it this way. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, not just to judge the living and the dead at the end. But again, the emphasis in verse 43, that the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes literally on Him, on Him like what? On Him like a rock upon which you rest. 
which isn't moved, whose disposition of grace toward all people who will trust in Him never changes, that those who lay themselves on this rock, He says, will be saved. He rose so that God-fearers get that and so that Christians who are diseased with the same thing that stunts the global intent of the gospel get this. The gospel is needed for us as believers as much as it's needed for God-fearers who aren't. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the is the balm, it is the tonic, it is the solution, this doctrine of a resurrection that Christ rose for our justification. And you say, what is justification? If you haven't heard it already defined by my words, it is that Jesus Christ declares you legally righteous before God by faith alone. In Christ alone. And what is faith alone? In Christ alone. It is the picture of a man who lays himself. A man who is broken. A man who is contrite. A man who is shaken. A man who's not doing all the right things. A man who doesn't comprehend all that he needs to. But he lays himself upon a rock that is solid. A man who isn't solid. A woman who isn't solid. Who lays himself on the one who is. Who rose from the grave to justify sinners. To justify the ungodly. Had you been godly. Had you been righteous. You would not need to have one who would come and die. Be buried and raised for justification. But all men are born into the world. Sinners. They are separated from God. They are dead in their sins. They will naturally follow after the prince of the power of the air. Their eyes will be blinded to the glory of the gospel. They will be at their best only able to say in terror something about God. At their best, they will only be able to fall down at men's feet and worship them as if they're God. But the only thing that brings the sinner all the way home and all the way in is that Christ was raised for their justification. That the power of this rock came up out of a rock to be alive for you and for me who will trust in him. And let's review the gospel. That if you believe today and if you ever will believe it's because he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. He calls you by his power. You couldn't muster it up ever. He calls you. He reveals himself to you. And when he does, he does it with surety. He does it with power. And you come and you cry faith in Christ alone. And you do it according to the Bible alone. And when you do, you receive at that very moment access and peace and joy and hope that can never be taken away from you. And you are at that very moment completely in right standing with God. You'll never ever have to turn back on that. God puts the fear of himself in you a fear that doesn't run from him anymore a fear that falls towards him and you are now a christian you are now a new creation and the old has passed away and nothing nothing at all could ever make you right with god and nothing could make you unright with him 
ever again. Christ has finished the work. However, now the joy begins for the essence of what it means to be a Christian is not merely that you have been forgiven, but that you now have been forgiven so as to delight in God the Father for His love, to delight in the Son for His grace, to delight in the Holy Spirit for His fellowship. You are not just stopping there, but you are redeemed so that you may display the beauty of His holiness before each other and before the world with gladness and joy and with hope and the peace that He gave you at justification. And it doesn't stop there. It goes on that he has adopted you to his family. You are now sons of God by inheritance. You now have all that Christ has and all that Christ is. That when God the Father looks at you, he loves you like he loves Jesus. To be called a child of God. That's what John meant. We have not received this by the will of a man. We receive this by the will of God. And then it doesn't stop at adoption. Then it goes on to sanctification. Meaning, and if you don't see it anywhere, you see it in Peter. Peter still is growing because Jesus is alive. And to be sanctified means that you will now go forward Living your life for the glory of God because you want to, because you're freed to, because the chains have come off to keep you from going all the way with God in these things. And so now every day in every place is set forth for you to glorify him in. Notice he didn't say to the centurion, go now and become a priest. Likely this man went on just simply being a leader of that cohort in that Roman army. But now he did it as someone who's been saved. The resurrection changes men from the inside out and provides forgiveness of sins. And many only see him as someone who's just a man. But this is not just a man. This is the God man. And he proved it. By rising from a grave. And because he rose from the grave. It need not be a terror. To the lost man who fears God. Nor to the Christian. Who is in Christ. It need only be something that you absolutely rejoice in the whole day long. Because he rose. So as to justify you. And to justify those far off from you, unlike you. Therefore, we could say today, if we get that, now we know. Because of the resurrection, now we know. With God, there's no partiality. Let us stand together for prayer. So, Father, we do need the resurrection of Jesus Christ as believers. That we may go all the way out with this gospel to the world. It is you saying, in essence, the world is yours. 
And we pray that as believers, we would, we would have a global vision of the gospel for the nations. Because of what we've learned today about the resurrection of Jesus for our justification. And those who are fearing God, whose alms and whose prayers have been set forth as a memorial and you accept them, they're a sweet fragrance to you. God, first of all, thank you for being in control of salvation. Thank you that there's no moment to where this centurion there will be any doubt about where he's going and what's going to happen in his life. It is clear you're going to save these like this. And perhaps there's, there's someone here today who they fear you. They really fear you and they're doing right before you, but they're always on the outside and they want to come all the way in. Would you be pleased today to bring them all the way in? Through this message, through the message of the resurrection of Christ for the justification of their sins, bring them all the way in, please, Lord, and make them whole. But even if you don't, we know you will. Because you do not fail in the mission. Your mission will be successful. The mission is great. Success is sure. The world will be brought to you, Lord. And your name will be made great in all the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. We know this. So keep our eyes on heaven. Keep our eyes on the gospel. Keep our eyes on Christ. Let us not be caught up into the dismal hopelessness of a society that can look no further than the crumbling of itself. May we look to heaven. And may the hearts of all be encouraged for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. As we go-